You're listening to Diamond and Human. Dang it. <laughs> Podcasts from the pub. This is The Pitch. Hello and welcome to Diamond and Human, The Pitch, live from the Wolverhampton Arena Theatre. For those who are quite confused or don't pay attention when we give out this information, we have told you we were doing this event. So this isn't just me and James on our own now sitting in the pub. So if, if there's actually going to be very little editing, well, I'll make it sound like it's polished in other episodes, yeah, like we've done it. <laughs> uh, we will start with a huge thank you to everyone that uh, downloaded the previous episode of The Pitch on rom-coms and our special interview with Vari McFarley. So huge thanks to Vari and a congratulations. We have a good record of people that come on the show <laughs> and talk to us of doing really well. Of We had when we Rachel Smith, the illustrator, has gone on yep. and done brilliant work. So huge congrats to Rachel as well. But Vari's just signed a three-book deal with HarperCollins. Yes. Uh, and he's going to be leading their for internet. wedge. Yeah, for a wedge. Wedge. Yeah. Always the bridesmaids, never the bride, yeah. isn't that right? Where's our goddamn Sony award? Well, it'll be now be weird. We'll have to keep a look at see if she actually takes any... She'll never use any No, no. <laughs> I started that one. So, the pitch. This time, um, in honour of it being Halloween and how much I love public events and things like that, we thought we'd do the... the stop. There's incredulous laughing at me, James. It's as if... I'm stunned. It's as if people know that maybe I'm a grouch. Yeah. I, I, I don't know where they get that idea from. No, I have no idea. But we've decided to do... Horror. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded, like, that sounded like the camps, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> this is one podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite good. And um, we are doing horror. Um, and in our normal way, so we'll go through kind of what we think makes horror. We'll ask our audience. Now we've got mm. people to ask rather than shouting out at Twitter. We've had a few people get in touch via Facebook and Twitter, so we'll give you a shout out of your ideas. We'll look at kind of what the ingredients are of a good horror, mm. pick out some others, maybe our favourite, and then get on to the, the nuts and bolts of what the hell have we come up with. Yep. Um, let's do our traditional one then. So are you a fan of horror? I like to think I am. In a weird way. I, I, I love the idea of horror more than the reality of horror half the time. Uh, I like lo- that we're cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> really like the idea yeah. of it. And, yeah, and cleaning horror, actually. <laughs> exactly. <The> horror. <laughs> um, it, I, I, it's a really nice genre to talk about. If you talk about genres, horror's great because it's really clean and clear cut. You know what a horror film looks like. Um, d- it's it's great for study. I studied it at university. Um, I'm talking to it with. I'm talking about it with my students at the minute because it's a really nice one that you can deconstruct. And there are some great horror films. My problem with horror, I, I don't like being scared anymore. I've got old and a bit soft, and so I I, I saw. I I literally had, when I ran the Fell Critics podcast, I had to force myself to go and watch horror films when they were out. And one of them was. Um, Sinister, I think, with Ethan Hawke. And it, I just sat there the whole time, kind of on edge. Going, this is a film. What the hell is wrong with you? But on edge, going, there's going to be a horrible, jumpy bit in a minute. I don't like it. I'm a bit scared by it. So I used to love horror films. There's a few that I still do, but I've, we've had a, a difficult history, me and the genre, there. Okay. You've got a complicated relationship. Got a complicated relationship. I don't like what it's turned into. I'm there you just go. curious, have we got many horror fans? Uh, yeah, a little bit. So I've, uh. It's a strange one because I always find horror is a bit like thrash metal, and I know they use it a lot 
in that genre, but people who are thrash metal fans are yeah. really thrash metal fans. If you don't get it, you don't like it. I think it's similar to horror. If, you don't, if you're not a fan of it, you're never going to... You know when people say, oh, you've not tried it, you might like it. No, I've seen the trailer, I'm not going to yeah. like it. I don't want to go and see it. Why would I pick it? I think yes. it yeah, no, I, I, th- I can't imagine many people who like one horror film for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah go, oh, no, I hate horror, but I love The Exorcist. You know, that would be a really odd decision, I think. That, yeah. that would be strange. I mean, I, I find it interesting if you look, but it, it, there's more than just horror genre, though. There's so many different subcategories yes. of you might like one style and not another. Yeah. I think we might have a couple where we say they aren't classed as horror, like we did with rom-com. Mm. And we just go, no, ruling you out. Okay. So one that was quite, we'll start with one that I thought, I think is a horror, but I've seen some controversy. Mm. Alien. Alien is definitely a horror. Aliens is an action film. Alien is a horror film. Yeah. Definitive. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. Is that one no, done? No, Next. Because no, no, it's, uh, it's your classic kind of creature feature. Um, you've got dark, car- you've got a load of the, you've got essentially the fee- sole female survivor who, yeah, yeah, there's so many horror tropes in yeah. there, it must be, yeah. I'd agree. It could also fall into sci-fi, but yeah. it's, it's still... Sci-fi horror. horror, yeah, a bit like Event Horizon. That's a sci-fi horror for that me. That is very horrific yeah. as well. Um, the ones I don't like are kind of gore ones, so gore and shock, I don't like... Like Hellraiser. <laughs> that was no, quite gory for me when I was younger. I mean, the ones like A Saw, where the main thing okay. seems about just the gore and hacking people up and going, oh, yeah. that's disgusting, that's gross. Those type of films, I don't get as much. No, 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 no. Uh, as Yeah, I, it depends. Some of the classic slashers I really like. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, original. Yeah. Love that film. Uh, and it, absolutely relentless. Um, yeah, it doesn't let up. It d- No. Uh, kind of like from about 15 minutes in, it just doesn't stop. <laughs> it's, but, it's, but it's brilliantly done. It's very raw. Um, I think if that was a polished film, I'd find it quite disgusting. But the fact that it was quite a raw kind of first-time director, I, I'm in awe of it. Well, that's kind of the history. There's an interesting one. I don't know if anyone has watched Brain Dead. So Peter Jackson, um, he did Brain Dead. He, he pretty much started New Line Cinema. Yeah. Um, because they were the only ones that funded it and took it on um, late 80s. So pretty much just over a decade later, they funded Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But that started from the money they made from Brain Dead. Yes. Which and is yeah, a horrible film. Horror, uh, horror genre is the one where you can totally see the business plan behind it. And I don't like to get into the business of film too often because people do find it a bit boring sometimes. But the fact that the horror genre just continues to make money because they make it cheap and there's a good, strong audience for it out there. I think sometimes that does mean that the quality of the film suffers. But at the same time, I can't help but admire the the business plan behind it. I, it's it's it exists for a reason. And there's a huge target audience. You see those posters, don't you? They all look the same. You know, what you're going to get on the side of the bus. One word, something that's happening. People are going to go along. The trailers yeah. all look pretty much the same, from like insidious, sinister. They all look the same to me. Uh, I yeah. can't really tell the difference. Getting old, aren't we? Yeah. I, I love it's like pop music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's not that all the all the best horror films are old horror films. It's just that I don't get modern horror in the way that I don't get modern. Is pop it music. without getting into it too much? Uh, is it the psychological thing of if you're younger, you're wanting to be scared and test boundaries, and it's and when you get older, you've got other things like a mortgage to be scared of. Yeah. <laughs> like real life things no, no, are scary. That's possibly true, but I think a lot of the older horror films that I love, I saw as I was grown up. I just watched it. And maybe it's just me being pretentious or something like that. Then It's like, oh, it's old, I like it. I don't know. I can't, yeah, yeah there yeah. might be that going on. But 
Um, I, I do struggle to... There's a few modern ones, which we might mention mm. in a second, that I do like, but on the whole, my, I, I prefer the... Not the Hammer Horror, although they're fun. Um, Roger Corman films are hilarious. Um, but more the kind of seventies horror for me was the heyday of horror. Okay. Yeah. So if you go through, because I was thinking like gore and shock ones, I'm not really a fan of. Mm. Paranormal ones, I quite like. Yeah, yeah. Paranormal ones are probably if you if you count the occult in there as yeah. well. Yeah. Then they're the ones that scare me the most. I still remember by, seeing by a cli- I grew up, and probably not many of our audience will remember this now, knowing how you, knowing how few of them you know, even knew who Mark and Lard were, but. I grew up at a time where the tabloid newspapers loved stories about Satanism. Okay, except for a kind of late 80s, early 90s, Satanism was massive. Okay, not in like a, you know, in the way that Instagram is massive now or something like that. <laughs> but like, it, it, was, it was a tabloid thing. Instead of immigration, they used to talk about devil worshippers, generally. Um, and in a way, a more innocent time, weirdly. Um, <laughs> But I was also quite religious as a kid as well. I, I, I converted my family to religion. Long story, anyway. Um, it's like powerful young Damien, obviously. But um, so that kind of st- that stuff really, really scared yeah. me. So most of the horrors that I find the scariest have their roots somewhere in religion um, or or ghosts, at least. Ghosts scare me a lot. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, I think. Because they link quite nice sort of psychological ones where you think about it and that scary thing of you don't, it's what you don't see. Yeah. Always makes horror kind of the scariest. And we're going from older ones. Mm -hmm. Have you got any old favourite classics then? So uh, I'd I'd, I'd still love um, the original Nosferatu. um, But I I really, really like the 70s um, uh, remake in German by um, Werner Herzog. Mm. Werner Herzog's Nosferatu is just totally about tone and creepiness. Um, and then, yeah, a big fan of The Exorcist. Genuinely love The Exorcist. Uh, the Omen. And again, you see, it's these kind of quite deeply religious ones that really, really chimed with me. Um, and one called, um, not many people seem to have seen it, Ride with the Devil. Um, starred Peter Fonda uh, and Loretta Swit. And it's two couples who go on a kind of motocross holiday in America with their caravan, and they stumble into a devil-worshipping cult. Um, and everyone, it's one of those classic rural countryside, everyone's connected to the cult, and they get chased across uh, the Oregon, I believe, countryside, and end up being captured uh, by the devil-worshippers. And the Wicker Man, I get another one. That's the stuff that, you know, so that era of horror... Really scares me. The other stuff I really like is the Italian giallo stuff. Um, so you've got things like uh, the bird with the crystal plumage, and well, don't look now is essentially a giallo, even though it's you know Nicholas Rogue, but um, really stylistic Italian slasher films where it just intercuts scenes of people having sex with people being brutally murdered. As a twelve-year-old, that was quite impressionable. <laughs> I think there's that, that difference of ones that are out for shock. So it's all around, you know, you get the jumpy noise, the hand reaches for the, the handle, you know what's coming. Yeah. It's that. But then, like we've mentioned earlier, those that are a slow build-up. And there's a great article I was reading comparing really good horror with really good comedy. It's all about the tension and the build and the release. So you build someone, you give them the release, and in horror it's the... <gasps> 
and obviously in comedy you get the laughter, but you need the build-up of how you do it, of those, those classic yeah. ones. And you could actually take that a step further and say that the bad comedies and the bad horror films are the ones who think that more is better, who just keep piling on either you know, grotesque humour after grotesque, or offensiveness over offensiveness without actually being funny, in the same way that just people getting hacked and slashed over and over and over again. Actually, no, that's overkill. So, yeah, that, that I think that analogy goes quite deep there. And also, kind of, you have to care about the character still. If there's someone in a horrific situation being chased, if you want them to get murdered, it's not quite as fun. Yes, yeah, you're that's rooting definitely for true. Them. Yeah. They can be a bit stupid and a bit dumb, but yeah. if you genuinely hate them, then no, they can die for all I care, yeah. I think it's also like when we talked about music, yeah. of what you get into when you're younger, that the first horror you see when you're younger is the one that's always going to be horrific. Even if it's got bad effects, it still scares you. You know, like yeah. people talk about watching Doctor Who mm. when they're a kid and hiding and they're still scared. Yeah. I think it's the same. So it's the one you remember watching as a kid that was particularly awful. Um, and for me, it, it was Ride with the Devil. That was the one, because it, it felt so normal. Um, and I saw Poltergeist at a young age. And actually, um, no, that leads me on to the one that genuinely scared me, and someone mentioned it on Facebook earlier, I think. Um, BBC's Ghostwatch. Uh, the, the fake, kind of before there was most haunted with Blue Peters of Fielding. Um, <laughs> Still don't get that at all. But um, before that, there was the fake documentary. And I was one of those people. I must have been nine or ten when that was, um, when that was shown. And I, like many people at the time, missed the beginning, the very kind of first two minutes where they kind of, a bit like um, Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, I missed the kind of set up and the context that suggested this was a drama using real life people. I genuinely thought it was a ghost hunting uh, documentary. And then it gets weird and pipes. I still have nightmares about pipes. About pipes? Pipes. Um, he was the friendly poltergeist that lived in this suburban family home and the little girl in it called him pipes because he like, banged on the radiators and things like that. And then over the course of this 90-minute special, which is presented as live television, so it's a bit like a BBC outside broadcast type thing. Craig Charles is in the house, uh, like, talking to the family. And you've got Michael Parkinson and Sarah Green. So, yeah, these are authority figures for a man of my age, okay? And they keep going back and then talking to experts, but then it starts getting worse and worse, and then it starts cutting out. And right at the end, Michael Parkinson speaking in tongues as the, uh, uh, the studio goes all weird and uh, like, you know in Ghostbusters when they open the fridge? Yeah. Yeah, it looks like that, basically. And I still genuinely, at that point, was going, God, is this real? Uh, yeah, and that really did stick with me. I think a common one, we've had um, shout out to Jess Green who got in touch about um, <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street, which yeah. was one of the early ones I watched and being really scared of what someone comes in your sleep. It takes the every day, everyone goes to sleep and it's happening. But Jess did say that her first boyfriend when she was 12, on their first ever date, <laughs> round at her mum's house, made her watch Nightmare on Elm Street uh, in the total dark and she's never recovered. Ouch. That, that, that is, is quite bad. That is horrible. Yeah. That was going to be what I thought was one of the, the scariest ones until uh, Jenna Forbes-Medley got in touch who said, I went to watch The Haunting in Connecticut when I was 35 weeks pregnant. And just as dead bodies were falling out of the wall, Reese, her son, decided that was a moment, was a perfect time to do a 360 inside me. My friend was so freaked out as you could see his feet and hands. 
I then did reply saying that would freak me out. And she said, I hate scary films as well. It was the only thing on. I was like, oh my God, I have a demon. <laughs> I thought I was going to give birth. Ha ha ha. I traumatized my friend and his girlfriend. Like what? That's, that is amazing. That is quite terrifying. Have you, have you ever got to the stage where you've literally had to turn, turn it off and go, no, I can't do anymore? Oh, we've, we've got what one. What was that? Which, what, what happened then? Which one? Jaws. Jaws. Jaws is scary. Come on down. <laughs> so, Kirsty, you said Jaws. Jaws. When and how and what happened? Uh, my my uh, siblings are quite a lot older than me, so my parents would often leave me with them thinking, they're responsible, we'll leave our three-year-old with them. Um, <laughs> And my brothers had no kind of concept of um, the, the ratings, so they didn't care. You was just a pointless film, PG, ridiculous. 18, let's put that yeah. on. <laughs> um, so as a three-year-old, they kind of put Jaws on, and I'm sat there watching it, and, you know, everything's lovely. They're on a beach. <laughs> I'm happy. And uh, out of nowhere, there's a giant rubber shark. And I did not sleep for weeks oh. because I was genu genuinely scared that the shark was going to come through my bedroom floor. <laughs> Bearing in mind, <laughs> I live in a little place in Darleston. Like, it's, it's a really tiny place in the Midlands. No one knows about it. And did it make you scared of going for a bath? Strangely enough, No. But <laughs> I was convinced it was coming through my floor. And it actually gave me a phobia of sharks. So I'm still not quite over it. To be it. fair, you are right to be scared of great white sharks. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, to me, that's a legitimate but phobia. Not when you kind of live right in the centre well, of no. England. You know what I mean? Like there, are <laughs> <laughs> there are no sharks. This is like a phobia of walking street. Is that a shark? Yeah. No, seriously. Like At one point, like my mates printed off pictures of sharks and kind of showed them and I'd just be like, ah! <laughs> Look, and I'd get really panicked about it and cry. Like, that's how bad it was. I'm much better. They just make me feel uneasy now. <laughs> that's, just that's a good just, one. I'd just cross the road to avoid sharks. Now. No, no, just I'm, <laughs> not even I'm not even lying. Like, my dad was watching like a documentary, one of those uh, Blue Planet or whatever, the other week, and a shark came on. And I just sat there like, oh, I don't like it. I feel sick. I feel sick. And that was... But that's the extent yeah. of it. You didn't run out screaming. Yeah, I don't know. I'm much better now. But Jules is a good one. Thank you very much. Thank Kirsten. you very Welcome. much. Thank you. Um, similar to that, I know people got, when you said you didn't know if, if it was real, mm. um, when the Blair Witch Project came out. Yes. Which I know you've got something to say about. Uh, at the time, I was going out with a girl from Hong Kong, and she told me about this film. And in Hong Kong, they, they often get the bootleg editions anyway. So they were around someone's house and said, oh, I've got a film to watch. And it was just on a VHS tape, scribbled the Blair Witch. So I was like, oh, okay, put it on. So over the opening bits, someone's getting a drink going, what is this? Oh, it's, it's these kids in America. So they watched it, totally thinking it was just a real footage. They didn't know it was a film. There'd been no advertising out. One of the friends just got this bootleg. And we were studying in Northampton, so you're surrounded by woods. And any time we went to go anywhere, they were properly terrified. Like, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I took this as a sensible thing. And in one of my friend's houses... They had a little basement, just nothing in it, rubbish. You know those old houses go down? 
but occasionally they try and freak each other out and leave stuff, so they deliberately take things down. So I went one step further, and when they left something, went down ahead and just stood in the far corner where I back turned. That's <laughs> so when they came and turned the light on. There was just this <laughs> noise. So I'll always thank the Blair Witch for that, although it made me sick watching it just from the yeah. motion. Yes, yeah. No, uh, the Blair Witch is an interesting one because, and this is, do you know what? Let's just kick off about uh, found footage, which is one of I like. To, but the Blair Witch is the found footage horror film that I like. I think it's a really well-made film. And the reason that I like it is because there's a reason for the footage to exist in the first place. They are making a documentary about a witch. That makes perfect sense to me. What I cannot stand are um, the paranormal activity films, the uh, any other found footage film where they've gone... Right, we don't want to pay anyone to make this look any good whatsoever. Uh, so if we have loads of really crappy handheld footage on a rubbish camera, let's call it a found footage film. Uh, and uh, and they go. It really winds me up because people people don't film the entirety of their life on video, okay? But in the films they do, and it's this area of the uncanny valley where they're trying so hard to make it look realistic. And so every found footage film starts with half an hour of boring as shit footage because they're trying to go, yeah, look, it's really real. This is what real people do. They talk crap for half an hour until the good stuff happens. But while that's going on, I'm going, no, I like to, I go to the cinema to watch nice cinematography and good acting and people who've written a script, not improv it and stuff like that. Um, and so it really, so I can't, it's so real that I can't buy into it. And so I just don't get found footage films at all. And they, they wind me up something. Mainly because none of the footage exists for a reason. I love Troll Hunter. Troll Hunter is a great film because that's about a documentary crew. So again, the footage, it makes sense that it exists. I can never let, I, can, I can't suspend my disbelief. Which is weird because like The Exorcist completely suspend my disbelief for that. But it's because I've made the decision to go well it's the same creative thing isn't it reading a book seeing a play of you need to make the offer and for the audience to accept it this is the reality we're giving you does it yes. make sense or it can be stupid yeah. yeah. it's stupid you've lost it kind yeah. of going I, I don't buy what you're trying to sell me no and you've gone no and yeah it's um yeah i was just gonna say when i brought up just now i just want to say i don't know if anyone's played the uh, video game pt uh which was the playable demo of what was meant to be a new Silent Hill film. I, I spent five minutes playing that game on my own with headphones on and I just turned off my PlayStation and I haven't gone back to it since. Because, it, and I was just walking around a corridor and then there was just a voice in my ear and that was the most terrifying thing I think I've ever seen. And I, I'm quite intrigued to see how, th there's some really good horror games and we can't go into that now, but um, I'm really intrigued to see how that kind of area goes. But that's the most scared I've ever been watching my TV screen, was actually a horror video game. Well, I think there's something about the horror ones of the ingredients. So you need to make it something familiar so you can relate to it. Yeah. You need something you care about what's going to happen. You need a sense of other. Yeah. And a lot of it that is infinitely scary. Your location's really important, being claustrophobic. So having something that's set in a place that you can't get out yeah. from, a time limit. Yeah often has something so there's a deadline or yes. towards it. Yeah. But again, if you're not making that offer properly, it doesn't doesn't work. Yeah, yeah and, and you've got to pay respect to the tropes and the conventions that are there in the first place. Yeah. The some of my favourite hobby, I I love Scream. Uh, Scream I think is That's a good one to say. We had a response only yeah. a short while ago of uh, Emily Breeden said Scream two was the scariest one. She goes, 
she's even put in brackets, I know, I was prescribed tamazepam by my GP after. I'm quite serious. Whoa! That's, that's real. Because I went to see Scream 2 on my own at the cinema, and it starts off with someone being murdered in the cinema. And I was there on my own, and it wasn't that busy in the cinema. And the first kind of five minutes, I'm like, I really love the first film. This was a mistake. And that terrible... So I'm... I'm I'm not glad to see that she had a traumatic <laughs> experience. I'm glad I wasn't the only one that was a bit scared. But what I like about Scream is it, it kind of it played with the conventions, but it still respected them. And and that's it. You've still got to present a horror film. You you, you can't just completely make it up from start. You've got to pay respect to what's gone before. I think that's we'll, we'll round up before we do our pitches of um I also thought really interesting. Um mentioned the Wicker Man. Mm. In Let the Music Play, I think the Wicker Man builds up the tension. That was a great yeah. one. If actually nothing really horrific happens, but there's a setup of you know something's going to happen. Yeah. And that's quite scary. But the last one I want to talk about, because I know we're both big fans of, and talking about paying attention to conventions, is Cabin in the Woods. Oh, I watched Cabin in the Woods at the weekend in preparation for this. I'm, I, I love research. Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, research. I was meant to be writing this, and I, put the, I thought I'll just put this on in the background, and then. Bradley Whitford turned up on screen. Yeah, I'm just going to sit and watch this again, to be honest. So why is it so good? Uh, what I love about Cabin in the Woods is that on one level, you can just, uh, until the last 20 minutes, you can just watch it as your typical kind of Evil Dead style, scary horror film. Um, and then it gets bonkers for a start. Uh, but on another level, it's ridiculously clever. It's really trashy and clever at the same time because... It ha you have the typical kind of teen slasher tropes there, but they're not quite as they are. So the, the virginial survivor girl has actually just come out of a relationship with her uh, lecturer at university. The uh, uh, Chris Hemsworth, who plays the kind of hunky jock, right at the beginning is telling her, no, you need to read this book and this book, and turns out he's actually quite intelligent. The, uh, the, the slutty blonde has only just dyed her hair. Um, and they're actually getting her... To, well, I won't go into too much detail, but yeah. Mm. It plays around with those. Um, it, anyone who loves monsters, the last 20 minutes of that film is just batshit. And it, it's fun. And it's fun. And it's um, co-written by Joss Whedon. Uh, and I think it's Drew Marshall. Um, and and it's, just, it's just funny. It's funny. It's got... Um, great dialogue uh, but at the same time it still follows the rules of a horror film and it's scary and it is scary I yeah. think the one that always scares me and I, I, if people don't find it scary I don't know why is zombies because it's going to be a zombie apocalypse so in yeah. my head that's going to happen so it's very plausible <laughs> when I'm watching The Walking Dead at one o'clock in the morning and I go into my garden that it is a zombie at the bottom yeah. and therefore going through my plan again of where I'm going to go yeah. how I'm going to combat them is totally logical Yeah. so it always scares me because I'm not going to bump into a shark, Kirsty. It's not going to be on the street. So Jaws, so Jaws scares shark, me. Zombie shark, though. Zombie yeah. shark. Watch out for that one. <laughs> but that terrifies me. Right. We're going to do our pitch. So let's uh, do the coin toss. See who's going first. That was rubbish. You've no, got no, to call I was going to say heads as well. I'm going to say heads again. Oh, yeah. I'm going to let you go first. Oh, man, always the same. I really hate you for doing this. Okay, so what we now do is we'll go through and give a very brief what our film is. Uh, we'll swap, and then we'll go through a bit more detail what our film is. Then we'll pick cast and crew and finish with a trailer. Are um, we actually going to be able to pick a favourite tonight? Because yeah. usually we have to wait for reaction on social media. I, I think we should 
have a put live our, studio vote. Put our, uh, our balls on the block, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do it, we'll do it. Um, I, I would say, I was going to have Die Hard the Horror was basically going to be my pitch. I will just say that one now. Because um, I just thought that's an easy one in a pitching room. If you remember Die Hard, it's yeah. that. But instead of like instead European of Hans thieves, Gruber. yeah, they're just going to butcher them. That was okay. a good concept. The other one was me about fancy dress because I fucking really hate fancy dress. <laughs> Obviously, and it quite it's scares connected me. to parties and national yeah. holidays. <laughs> and, it, and also, it quite scares me. I remember one time, like people dressed as animals, I don't like. Okay. One, I just think it's stupid, but two, they, they always try and be overly friendly, so someone dressed, leapt out dressed as a chicken in front of me, I just punched it on reflex. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Um, so I have to be really careful in towns when people are doing like rag week and stuff, because I'll just get arrested. Um, so it was my fancy dress, but then I realised it just looks stupid, and it's got too much comic potential. Um, so instead, my title, which is awful, so if anyone thinks of a title during this, please feel free to tell me, is called The Cull. Uh, and my very quick, brief outline of it is, despite illegal immigrants and unemployed... What? Well, that's not made sense. If I can read my writing. <laughs> glasses back on. My very brief one is, desperate illegal immigrants and unemployed take on some off-the-books work. Once they reach the warehouse, they realise the payment is their lives. Ooh. That's it. That's all I'm giving you at the moment. Okay. Okay. Uh, mine... Um Again, uh, I just can't. I can't stay away from terrible puns. Um, mine is called Headcount. <laughs> Tagline: Welcome to six six sixth form. <laughs> <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. Yeah. That's it done. Um, yeah, uh, some low low rent tabloid. Uh, I've got a, I've got a pull quote uh, from a review as well. Ready? The Wicker Man meets the Breakfast Club. Um, see, now nah, you're interested. Uh, every year, a group of sixth form students from West Moulton School travel to the Lake District to for forge friendships, build character, and get away from the modern world. This year is different, though. Someone or something else is out there with them. They're going to need to work together as who knows how useful or complicit their retiring headmaster, mysterious new teacher on his first hike, or the unnervingly friendly locals will prove to be. Just a bit of background, I basically went on a hike with my school uh, this week and, you know, I don't know if any of you have seen Seinfeld and that bit where George Costanza goes, this is the show. I was in the Lake District and went, this is the pitch. So, yeah, um, none of this is true, though. I, I, you know, that it didn't happen. None of this happened, just to make that very clear. Okay, I did try to do mine really brief and then as always happens down the pitch, I end up, like, writing the whole opening. So I'll try and do this without it being just me telling you the entire opening of a film. Um, my brief context around it was I still wanted to make it socially relevant. Because mm -hmm. I really liked Dawn of the Dead. And for what it did. Yeah, being Dawn of the Dead's amazing. Yes. Yeah, and I really loved what he did in that film of kind of making it socially relevant. Um, so this is about Reem. Reem came into the country illegally from the Middle East. She was fleeing conflict. And she smuggled in her son, Malik. She worked in hospitality, because obviously that's kind of the easy way to get work and jobs. And she'd take anything she could. She'd been staying with her family in a small terrace house. At one of the hotels where she works as a cleaner, she meets Alex. He's got wealthy parents, but they live in Dubai. Disowned him. Quite rightly so. He sounds like a dick. <laughs> he struggles to make ends meet, doing a variety of manual jobs, and he's currently labouring. Despite Reem's protests about needing to be at home for Malik, he persuades her to go for dinner with him to a restaurant that they can't afford. But he's one of those, of, we just need to live life. Let's just go and do it. And they go along, they have a great time. But on the way back, they see the immigration van outside her house. 
Alex prevents Reem from rushing in. As she sobs, they then go back to the house when everyone has left to find Malik, her son, hiding in a secret hole, brandishing a knife that he flashes out and cuts Alex's arm with. But now we cut ahead. That's kind of the setup. So then over the credits, we see they've kind of got together. They're living together in a really rubbish studio. We see a montage of their struggles, making ends meet. Alex is trying to see how he can fix Reem and Malik's legal status. And he meets up with the landlord, who's a typical oily, greasy, well-off, oiky... You just know he's horrible. Yeah. That type you instantly see and dislike, like when you go to the bank. <laughs> That's exactly the setup we want. Um, he gets told of a job by the landlord. He's trying to force him, saying he kind of knows the setup. So the landlord suggests this job. It's well paid, off the books, a night shift at the warehouse. Alex tells Reem, and she's really angry. She shouts about he needs to look after Malik. If Alex is the only legal person that can work, he can't take risks. All of this, how can he trust the guy? Alex shouts back, and there's a bit of a domestic sound. Well, I can't look after the kid anyway. He barely speaks English. He doesn't understand me. Cut to shot of Malik, who clearly does understand him. This is all just 10, 15 minutes. Deliberately really slow. I want to build up on the language barriers, the ease with which Reem is invisible. So this idea of these... Uh, if you get a foreign worker, they just drift and no one really pays attention. So she just drifts around. No one really sees her at work or in life in general. She just blends in. We see Malik, her son, trying to educate himself, not get bullied, but mainly just the normality of it, the awfulness of their situation and how they kind of make do. So they build little things. They solve problems by... They'll make, like, solar power for themselves in the house. They'll make little toys and they'll make games just doing it themselves. So the night the job comes around, Alex confesses that he won't go. He kind of realises Reem's unhappy. The landlord collars Reem and threatens her. It's intense, it's physical, he's nasty, leering in her face. Reem says she'll do the job. She leaves a note for Alex explaining it. And if she disappears, he can look after Malik. Because if he disappears and goes off, then they're kind of screwed. So she's trying to explain, look, this is why I need to do the job. She gets into the minibus. Has anyone done any of these jobs where... I'm just assuming I'm one of the few people that had that raft of rubbish jobs where you turn up. Do you know what I mean? When you just turn up, you get on a minibus and you get bussed somewhere. You kind of just have to do it. And it's kind of it's a bit stupid in a way because you have yeah. no idea where you're going. You just stand in a queue and they go, go here. So she gets onto the minibus and they head out. It's mainly men, but it's also a mixture of foreigners and desperate Brits. Uh, they have strange looks and comments. Cars coming too close. Are they following? They hide. We get the impression the driver isn't at all easy with this. He seems quite odd. They pull over, one of them needs a pee. One of them thinks there's something on the roof. And this is all kind of the setup of is something really happening? And we do hear something. We then hear the noise. They look, follow it. This one guy's already off for a pee. They call to him. He's by an old burger van pulled at the side of the road, obviously. And some of them run over to him. They reckon that what was on the roof is now hiding in the burger van. This is now the classic horror suspense shots as we go in, it's really slow, a mixture of the languages, they can't quite understand each other. There is something, they hear a noise, they pull open the van door, it's Malik, he's followed his mum, and he's hidden the tarpaulin on the top. Kind of your nullified scare, you think it's be something, it's not. So that's the whole build-up. We then get a couple of nondescript foreigns. They're just foreign people that barely speak English. They're the ones going to get killed real quick. <laughs> We then have Ash, who's an English Muslim, and he gets asked, what are they talking about? What, just because I'm brown, you reckon I can understand? Trying to play on this whole thing of the assumptions yeah. people make, so the driver thinks he must do it. We then have Lara, she's skint, and she admits to faking an accent as she says they're more likely to get the hospitality work because people think they're easy to manipulate. Let me also get Mark, quiet, intense, broody, desperate, angry, doesn't say much. They get to the warehouse, greeted by a caretaker guy. He gets them to sign in and says he'll be in the cabin. The instructions are all inside. 
And obviously this is now the horror. So there's all our setup. These are the people. This is what's happening. Once they sign in, they get given a badge. They're buzzed in through a security fence, past the sign for a guard dog, an Alsatian. That's important. And a full bowl. No sign of the dog. What greets them? Well, the whole setup now is this is, it's the whole job's been a setup for a cult. They've laid out a maze and traps and they're going to pick off the group. They want the poor and desperate people. The cult are dressed in suits with plastic masks on with a fixed smiley face and they wear bowler hats. They are rich, privileged people who pay to join the cult who then set up these ritual events to kill and sacrifice poor people. It's a mixture of horror and dawn and a dead satire and these are ruthless, barbaric, clearly psychopathic people. When they corner their victims in there, they peel them, burn them, chop them up in packaging boxes as fertiliser. The ashes are also recycled. At one point, one of them gets Lara. She gets tangled up. He leans in and soothes her, takes off his hat. And she's all scared, saying, I don't want to see you. It's okay. I won't be able to identify you. He shushes her in that kind of, shh. You are like a leech. We have to pick you off. But you also have a debt. You need to pay the banker. He's been stroking her arms. It's all over. She looks down. He's raised her veins. He takes off his mask and just a handsome young face frozen in a frightening grin. He leans down and licks her blood before spitting it in her face. It's okay. You don't matter. Just another useless, faceless leech. And then he cuts off her face. Other times they're lured in by money dropping off a balcony or leading them into a furnace. They're hunted with darts to slow them down. Husband Alex comes racing along. He now finds this note. He knows what's happened. He finds the minibus, the driver, staring straight ahead. As he gets to him, he realises his face has been cut off. Malik and Reem then get separated. She sees a bowler hat and flies round, trying to attack it, thinking it's one of these people. And she sees it's Malik. Where did you get that? The nice man gave it to me. This repels the firing, and this is kind of a kick moment. Now Reem turns into Ripley. She's going <laughs> to kick ass. She's going to go for it. She teams up with her son. And like ghosts, they start drifting around, taking off the other people, turning the tables. They're like the fucking A-team. They use anything they can find. They take out the boxes. They find stuff. They rig it. They start taking them apart. They are awesomely cool. But this is a change. Alex arrives to rescue them, being obviously the bloke. But he gets sliced up real quick. It's Malik who saves them. The sun comes along. Kind of a little bit of, we don't need the male guy. We don't need the typical trope of him coming back. Uh, and Rimu takes out the main leader, the main banker, by firing a syringe into him. She doesn't give a quip. She just leads Malik away, saying it's all okay. They can leave him there. But then she comes back in our final shot, just butchers him. Really goes to town and faded the end credits of it. That's my brutal horror film, The Cold with a Terrible Title. Wow, where did that come from? That's scary. I don't I've got to drive home with you. <laughs> <laughs> you it was set in the back. <laughs> it's set on the idea of obviously trying to play on some of the current topics at the moment and thinking what's scary. Warehouses, I've done warehouse jobs, they're horrible mm. at night mm. and you always get dark corners. Lights flicker, don't work properly. You're usually left somewhere on your own and just do this. There's lots of hiding places that you can do. It's like the idea of when Malik one time is, is running and hiding you see behind him boxes start to open up. Mm. So lots, because that always scared me when I was there. Yeah, no, I, it's quite, uh, it, it's a very modern take on the horror, actually. Uh, yeah, that completely urban horror. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I like it. It was better than my Die Hard one. I like it, I like <laughs> it a lot. Um, yeah, oh, I've, 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 you've thrown me a, a 
a something. I don't know. I'm, I'm lost for words. Um, okay, yeah, so uh, head count. Um, yeah, oh dear. This, this, I wrote this on three cups of coffee this morning. So uh, I'm. Uh, please excuse the plot holes very quickly. Uh, yeah, so um, school is taking some students away for the weekend as an intervention to get them back on track. The students are a, a mix of messed up teenagers, all in danger of failing exams for various different reasons. Some are, some are talented, some aren't. Accompanying them on this uh, annual trip are the soon to retire headmaster known only as Sir, and Mr. Draper, a new teacher to the school, who was a last minute replacement after the teacher that was due to attend got into a car accident the day before. They're driven to the lakes with the minibus journey and services stops the chance to get to know the student characters with uh, generic uh, young people bants. That's uh, so why I've got, I've got kind of sketched in for that. I'll get someone to write those, it's fine. Um, and they're driven by Hugo, who's one of the parent governors at the school, who also spends a lot of time volunteering with the children. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they start their six-mile hike after being dropped off to the isolated youth hostel. And I'm just going to say, there is a, a, the youth hostel I stayed at in my school, uh, with my school, it's called Black Sail. It is an incredible place. And I'm not trying to scare people away from there because it's, it's about two miles away from the nearest track, essentially. Um, it's right in the middle of this valley. It's this beautiful, beautiful old shepherd's bothy. Um, and I picture this because I was there. And I was like, this is really isolated. This is beautiful, but also terrifying at the same time. There's no electricity there or anything like that. And there's no mobile signal. So, yeah, I, I'm going for a real kind of classic horror film, but I'm trying to make it so that people don't have mobile phones and things like that. Um, so uh, they start their six-mile hike to the isolated hostel that's going to be their base for the weekend. It starts getting darker more quickly than they imagined, and they soon get lost in the dark, leading to Will, who's the outdoorsy one of the group, stumbling and severely twisting his ankle and possibly breaking it. Luckily, the local warden, Emma, has stayed at the hostel with the light on, and the group make it there just before midnight. Meanwhile, a local policeman inspects the minibus, which is still sitting in the same lay-by in which the students had left it. It's now empty. Strange sounds happening through the night sky. The following morning, everyone has breakfast while discussing what to do with Will, who's still asleep. Uh, Mr. Draper seems keen to get the mountain rescue helicopter in, but Emma says, no, the fog's too thick for a landing. You can barely see 15 feet in, in front of your face. And the Land Rover ride could do even more damage. Sir thinks it's just a sprain. And so the group decide to leave it a day and see how it develops. Classic horror trope. Uh, Emma says she'll keep an eye on Will while the group go for a walk. But Alison, another one of the youngsters, insists on staying behind to keep an eye on him. You know, safeguarding one adult with one child. That doesn't seem right. Um... So the rest of the group head off uh, up over Red Pike in the fog, and soon disorientation leads them to losing contact with each other. Um, uh, there was a film, uh, a Mads Mikkelsen film, that was um, Nicholas Wyndham Refn. I can't remember the name of the film. He was a blind Viking. Uh, yeah, and what I'm going for here, it, there was a, a section of that film where it was just fog and disorientation of fog in, in a land that you don't know. That's what I'm going for here. So they've kind of got a little bit lost and there's whistles, but they suddenly stop hearing the whistles and they've been split off uh, into groups. Um, odd sounds echo through the valley and falling rocks appear from nowhere. There's a jump scare when Aubrey and May, two of the girls, come across a sheep that has been torn apart. Very mysterious. And then Hugo also appears, double jump scare. Uh, he claims the van wouldn't start, and he started walking after the, after the group to stay at the hostel, but he got lost. He's been out on the moor all night. 
The girls are suspicious of him. William and Donald, two of the young lads, keep walking until they reach a village. And there's a pub there. They go into the pub. William's looking for Wi-Fi. There's a William and a Will, because uh, it leads to... Com- it's partly because of my casting. You'll get that in a minute. But also partly because, do you know what? Chances are, someone with a similar name's going to be on the trip. Okay, I'm, do- I'm just going for ultimate realism here. Um... So William is go- goes in, he's looking for Wi-Fi, he's trying to get a mobile signal. Donald, who's a bit more of the jock type, is planning to try his luck at the bar. William talks about famous examples of unfriendly pubs and locals, you know, Withnell and I, things like that. Um, but the locals are suspiciously welcoming. Uh, Donald just accuses William of hating the North, basically. Uh, back at the hostel, Alison is trying to keep Will talking, but he doesn't seem himself. Has he been drugged? Emma heads out in the Land Rover, so Alison goes into the kitchen to start looking for evidence. Then we've got that classic, the person goes away and then changes their mind and comes back, and you see them coming back, the vehicle. She finds some unlabeled tablets, an elaborate dagger, plus hand-drawn maps with strange symbols that appear to be hundreds of years old. We hear the Land Rover pull up, and she stumbles around trying to get out of the kitchen in time, but the door all of a sudden is locked or won't shift. We then see enter Emma the dorm room that Will is sleeping in. The two teachers, Sir and Mr. Draper, are walking increasingly concerned for their charges, but also just generally talking about the stresses of teaching. It's not actually, uh, they're not that worried about them. They just think they're a little bit along the track at the minute. Why is Sir retiring earlier than he was planned? Uh, there's unspoken suspicion between the two men, but they eventually meet up with the girls, and as the fog starts to clear, they come across the drunk boys making their way through the valley, singing 500 miles by the proclaimers. As they get back to the hostel, the Land Rover's gone again. And they hear Alison screaming and banging against the kitchen door. Before they reach her, though, they see a desecrated sheep carcass nailed to the door of the room that Will is in. The children are begging to leave now, regardless of the impending dark, and they agree to carry Will with them. The teachers are still in two minds when Emma races up to the hostel in the Land Rover and tells them to get inside now. She's also with uh, the police officer who came across the empty thing, uh, the empty van. Rush inside a lot of the door. Uh, Sergeant Hoskins tells the group that there's a dangerous escapee from a local asylum on the loose. Now, yeah, of course there is. Urban legend. It's classic urban legend. Best thing to do is stay in here until backup arrives in the morning. Overnight, the terror ramps up as at first there were horrifying noises outside. This is where it starts to get a bit relentless. Mr. Draper and Hugo uh, go outside to investigate, but they don't come back. Sir gets quieter and quieter, and finally the generator gives out, and the valley is plunged into darkness. For the next 10 minutes on screen, the attack happens in darkness. We as an audience, all we see are flashes of light from mobile phones and shouts and screams of students. This is all going to be about the soundscape here, uh, defending themselves and attempting to escape. Then the screen is suddenly lit up brightly as the hostel is surrounded by a ring of fire. Sir is flanked by Hugo and Emma and two strangers in elaborate robes. They explain uh, that as the school and as at school and so now, self-sacrifice is so important. A long and grand monologue about upholding the status quo and getting children ready for their destiny in life follows, with the apparent leader explaining that he's also rather sorry. But, and this is weird, that we uh, increasingly strict immigration rules have led their chapter to having to search closer to home for their needs. Um, That's weird. We keep doing that. Um, uh, 
uh, during all this, uh, Alison has slipped out the dagger that she found earlier from her waistband and palms it carefully, slashing at Emma as she comes to take her to the robed guys. Struggling shoes and she escapes into the dark, leaving behind the murder that we can hear happening inside the ring. She eventually bumps into Mr. Draper up on the hills and he says he went to get signal so he could call the police and got a bit lost. They, they need to get higher. She kind of suspiciously follows him. They climb and climb. She's panicking. She's holding the dagger, ready to defend herself against him, when suddenly we hear a beep, 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 beep. Signals coming back to his phone. We see text messages coming in from his wife, kind of banal yet loving messages from his wife. I just hope you're having a great time. I hope everything's okay. I hope sir isn't too weird. He smiles and then drops the phone and then drops to the floor himself, dead. A knife is in his back. Behind him stands Hugo with a crossbow. Alison screams. Hugo fires. The screen goes blank. <laughs> you kind of looked at me in a really smug way like I'd know everything then. You're like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> what? So this, that feels like a, a mashup of like old film with some new ones yeah I, I've, I, what I really like is I, I love the use of horror as a uh, an allegory for society you mentioned Dawn of the mm. Dead um, so Dawn of the Dead was uh, basically Romero uh, Romero's take on consumerism gone rampant uh, Night of the Living Dead uh, a lot of Soviet era um, kind of paranoia and things like that and so mine is I, mine is a kind of joint allegory for Ofsted and um <laughs> And immigration. So there we go. Um, that's what I've gone for. It also reminds me a little bit. Have you seen Sightseers? Yes, yes, I have seen Sightseers. Has anyone seen Sightseers? The yeah. opening is one of my favourite openings to a film that's really quite scary and funny at yeah, the same it, time. And, and beautifully yeah. shot as well. And that's what I wanted to cap. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to capture the um, the, the kind of the beauty and the isolation and the potential horror of somewhere like the Lake District. Well, it's that weird thing if you go. If you go somewhere and it's really desolate, you have that beautiful moment, you look at it and you go, oh, isn't this lovely? Yeah. No one around for miles. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it kind of turns from being quite cool to, uh, yeah. this is actually yeah. quite scary if something goes wrong. Okay, there are our two films. We'll do cast and crew. So mine's quite straightforward. Um, I'm, I'm going really straightforward. Uh, I mentioned um, Sightseers. I want Ben Wheatley to nice. shoot mine. It seemed an obvious one. I really like Ben Wheatley's stuff. Um, if people trace it back in his first films, Down Terrace was a kind of domestic horror, which was really mm. well done, and I want elements of that. But I'm going to team him with Frank Darabont. Nice. Yep. Going straight for it. This is, I, this is the first time I've gone for total, utter fantasy yeah. of something that will never happen. Like it. Of, he's written the best ones of The Walking Dead. He's led that, so I want someone that knows grand scheme, but can work with Ben Wheatley, who's going to make it look English and quirky and mm. fun but someone that's huge. And I'm going to pair them with uh, Laurie Rose, who was cinema photographer on Kill List. Mm -hmm. So she's worked with Ben before, which is great. Ben, my mate. But she's also done ABCs of Death, and she's shot a lot of Peaky Blinders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's my dream team, putting them together. My cast, uh, lead one, Spreem and Malik, I want some unknown but genuine Arabic actors. Okay. That's what I put, because I don't really want to find a Brit who looks a bit foreign. Yeah. You know, like they normally yeah. do, they look a bit foreign. And, and, and do you know, that? yeah, horror is a great genre. Uh, I'm getting my excuses in here as well. Uh, horror is a great genre for using people that you don't know because you you identify far more with. It. You don't look at it and go, "Oh, that's the actor so and so." Yeah. Um, I, it's good to have actors in there, but the people in danger 
I think far more often. It sounds like we've done the same thing because around yeah, those. Yeah, let's see what happens. Well, around those two unknowns, I then want a litany of people that are awesome. Yeah. And you kind of go, oh, them. So when you see the trailer, you go, oh, that, you, what, yeah, what? Yeah. So uh, the husband, uh, so playing Alex, the kind of bumbling but really nice one that turns up, Paul Bettany. Nice. Minivan driver who's slightly racist, a little bit way, Danny Dyer. Yes, yeah, yeah, like it. Who's going to get killed early, but he'd love doing that. Yeah. He'd be so, uh, for, for a second, I thought you were talking about Mini Driver. Well, you said Minivan Driver. <laughs> I thought, is that our new nickname for her or something? <laughs> she just drives a minivan. <laughs> Actually driving the minivan is Danny Dyer. Uh, the landlord, greasy, quite threatening in your face, Nicholas Holt. Uh, because he's great and he's awesome, but he also is quite scary. Yeah. A new film that's coming out that looks uh, Kill Your Friends. Yes, yeah. He looks quite intimidating. And also just to throw him in as yeah, someone you go, yeah. what? It's a small part. Uh, Ash, the English Muslim on Riz Ahmed. Mm. He's done some great stuff, obviously four lines, but also Shifty recently. Yeah. Uh, Lara, the girl that looks slightly like she's Eastern European but isn't and faking it. Uh, and also the cute one you think going to have a lot yeah. happen to her but gets killed really early. Emily Browning, who's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Sucker Punch was probably one of her biggest ones. Uh, Mark, the intimidating kind of guy that's there and angry and desperate in the van and throws out some odd comments. Uh, Jack O'Connell. Yeah, yeah. Angela Dean and Jolie's wow. favourite. Yeah, the warehouse is. guy, jo Derek Jacobi. He's only in it for five minutes. Yeah. I want Derek Jacobi. Yeah. Just you see him on the trailer and go, Derek Jacobi's in this. Yeah. yeah. And he'll love it. He yeah, gets killed quite quickly, but yeah. throw him in. Uh, and then the main banker killer, which will kind of get the idea. So these guys are... It wants to look quite cartoonish, but also horrible. And funny, we was talking earlier about Clockwork Orange. Yeah. I kind of want that look. The bowler hat. Yeah. And it'd be quite scary. And it is very obvious these are rich, well-off people doing it with this horrible plastic mats with a grin. Take it off, and the grinning one straight back is Eddie Redmayne. Wow. As the main one. So that's, yeah, kind of pulls it yeah. out. And then music, which I'll use in the trailer when we get to it. Uh, I've been really safe. I've gone Clint Mansell from Requiem for a Dream, uh, Moon. But also the bit of music I'm going to use is from The Fountain, which is an awesome film. And his, his music is the track I've got for it. I want him to do that. So, yeah, it's my cast and crew. Okay. Bit There's weirdly more crossover than you'd expect. It. My director. I've gone for Peter Strickland, who directed Barbarian Sound Studio. Um, You're a big fan of that film. I hated it. I know. Love that film. Um, it's very creepy. And the sound design in that film is well, it's about a it's about a sound foley guy. Uh, so yeah, uh, and also he's British, and I think he'd get the sense of oddness. But I think I like to think he'd enjoy doing a kind of slasher film with some teens <laughs> as well. Who knows? Weirdly, this is the first time we've ever gone for the same cinematographer. But yeah, I went for Laurie Rose purely because I wanted that Ben Wheatley look from uh, Sightseers in a Field in England. So that's what I'm going for there. Um, I've got I a writer. That's ever happened before? No, it's never happened. Uh, I went for a writer. Um, I went for Simon Barrett who wrote Your Next and The Guest, which are two of my kind of favourite, more modern horror films. Um, but I would need to get um, someone to sort out the kind of English dialogue. So I just thought I'd get um, Simon Beasley and Ian Morris from In Between Us and Flight of the Concords to take a look over the, the dialogue between the teenagers, to be honest. Um, my cast, Sir, the retiring head teacher, Toby Jones who I love from Barbarian Sound Studio. I've only just started watching The Detectorists. Um, I, I didn't even know it was a thing last year, and I spotted it on iPlayer, because I think they're repeating it with him and Mackenzie Crook. I just love Toby Jones in a lot of things. Um, so, yeah, Toby Jones as Sir. As Mr. Draper, I'm going with Matthew Goode, who's English actor. He was the lead in... He was Uncle Charlie in Stoker. 
Now, I was really disappointed by Stoker, but he was really creepy in that. He's also been the last couple of seasons as the, of The Good Wife, uh, as uh, a good guy as well, because what I want is you to not know whether he's good or bad. Um, Emma, the warden up on the lakes, I've gone for Ruth Wilson, uh, as uh, who was the psychopath, psychopath extraordinaire in Luther, um, and I love her. She's awesome. And also, is she good? Is she creepy? Mm -hmm. Who knows? Uh, Hugo, the parent, minibus driver, who goes, Mark Gattis, creepy, nice. good. Who knows? You see where I'm going here. They can play really kind of creepy or good. You just don't know. Um, Sergeant Hoskins, Michael Smiley, uh, another Luther alumni as well there. And then for my teenagers, I've, I, I've just gone for types. Like, yeah, I want unknowns. I don't want these actors, because I know these actors. I want people like these actors. Oh, okay. um, and essentially, uh, the reason I think, I don't know if anyone's a fan of Archer, the uh, TV series. And what I, there was a great story about Archer, where the guy who wrote it, they did a casting call for, um, Sterling, for Mallory Archer, who's uh, this old female head of a spy service, alcoholic, sarcastic, she's amazing. And the casting call went out saying, I want, uh, something like I want someone like Jessica Walters out of Arrested Development. Basically, I want the Bluth mother from Arrested Development, someone like that. And her agent got hold of that, and so he got Jessica Walters from Arrested Development, and she basically came in and was her character from Arrested Development. That was his casting call. And I've gone, right, okay, I want a type then. So... Um, and so these correspond with the names as well. So I want a Donald Glover type. I've been watching a lot of Community again recently. I also want an Alison Brie type. They need to skew slightly younger though, but Alison Brie is going to be the virginial young one who tries to look after Will. Donald is the jock. Um, a Will Poulter type, uh, big fan of Will Poulter. Um, he's the outdoorsy one. A Will Bird type uh, from the in-betweeners, the kind of geeky academic one. Uh, and then finally, the two girls that get lost. I want kind of sarcastic, not wanting to be their teenage girls. So I've gone for an Aubrey Plaza type and a Mae Whitman type. Um, uh, and then, oh, finally, as the cameos at the end, as the two bad guys who turn up who are the head of this uh, cult, Anthony Michaelhead and Michael Sheen. Um, Again, just, throw, a bit of just work. throw them in, yeah, exactly. Uh, and Michael Sheen does a load of crap horror films as well as being a brilliant actor, so he'll clearly turn up. He did Underworld, so he'll do this. Yeah, exactly. Right, no messing around with trailers. Could we cue track? 12, please. An empty road. We see lights in the distance. The camera goes in close. There's a dead dog. An Alsatian on the road. Remember when I said earlier? A minivan approaches. Inside the minivan, there's the argument in different languages about a lighter. A man screams that shuts them up. This in turn distracts the driver who swerves to miss the dog in the road. The screaming man starts singing a scary as fuck Arabic folk song. Think Maypole from The Wicker Man, but a bit like I'm tired and I want to go home. An English guy. An English guy says something typically racist. We cut to Alex and Reen discussing why she's going. We hear the landlord. We cut back to the minivan and it's re-opening the door to the burger van. We don't see it's Malik at this point, just something that scares her. We then cut to them at the warehouse, calling out hello. Glimpses of the whole minibus lot, lot together. 
There are name badges on a desk, signing in sheet. Once I've signed in, the minivan leaves. He says he'll be back at 6 a.m. The gate buzzes open. They enter a past sign of a guard dog, pitch of an Alsatian. One of them calls to it as he kicks into a full dog bowl of food and water. Then a montage of lights going out, lighting up, then being led into the warehouse, shadows and shapes. The money releases and we see them running, smiling, screams in separate rooms. We see one of them on a floor scrambling away. We see the scene of the masked face leaning in, taking off the bowler hat. The more desperate you are, the more they'll bleed you dry. Or something less obvious is the voiceover. Then Malik calling out for his mum in Arabic, then a single, Mum? As he walks down an aisle of boxes and we see the lids start to open it one by one by his side. He turns, his mum goes to call and a hand goes across her mouth. And that's when the title comes up. That's it, that's my trailer. Wow. Nice and dark. Brooding, dark, slow, intense. Who's is it? Not much shots of what's happening, yeah. but lots of these shots of the people on it. So we go, it's him, it's him, it's him. Like it. Your turn. Okay, yeah, so can we have the next track? Opens with a minibus full of kids and two teachers trying to ignore the racket in the back. The older of the two teachers is driving and talking about pressure from above. It's like we're being watched at every second. Don't be surprised to find a knife in your back. They talk about the trip. This will be character building for those back there. What doesn't kill them after all? The kids are bonding and sharing generic young people banter. We then cut to black and Orbitals the Box kicks in properly. Cut to a number of shots showing the beauty, isolation and otherworldliness of the north of the Lake District. Then the following in quick succession. The accident that befalls Phil. Oh, Phil? Will? God, no. Uh, increasing panic about the dark and the fog. Arriving at the hostel to find a backlit Emma welcoming them. The empty van, the police officer looking around it. Boys getting drunk and rowdy in a pub. The girls finding the first dead sheep. Emma sliding into bed with Will. Then darkness and screaming for a few seconds. Up comes the title, Headcount. Cut to May, sitting and looking uncomfortable in an outside toilet. The light goes out. Guys, stop dicking around. Come on, turn it back on. Beat. The light comes back on and this time the walls are covered with daddy long legs and moths are beating against the light. There's a scream. Cut to black, coming soon. So that is Headcount yes. and The Cult. If anyone could think of a better title for me, I'd be <laughs> really, really grateful. Because there was a film I did find called The Culling, and it looked awful, so I'm yeah. quite happy taking The okay. Cult. But it, yeah, it doesn't, yeah, I couldn't really think of anything. Like Warehouse 10 sounds rubbish or something like that. <laughs> um, this is the first chance we get to do this. Right, we're going to have a vote. <laughs> Should we do it by noise? No. <laughs> we're doing a vote. We're doing so. Pure democracy. Uh, Hands up for headcount. Ah, that's harsh. Wow. Hands up for the cull. The people have spoken, to be fair. People have spoken. I win one. You win one. Thank you. Thank you, audience. It's the first time, that's I think, good. for quite a while. To be I've fair, to yours win. is a far more fully formed film than mine. Mine's, mine is a load of tropes thrown together. You know what I think yours makes? What? As you're saying it, I it is a TV series. Really? <laughs> yeah, I see there's this thing of these kids going, so you form okay. it's like a, a mini-series okay, that yeah, comes yeah. out rather than a film. So you okay. get to know them in the school, and it builds and it builds, and you see the sections. Oh, okay. I could see That's that. That's quite nice, yeah. yeah. 
I'm just going to bask in the glory of one one. Of course you did. And then patronise my idea. <laughs> well, you've, you've kicked my butt in recent weeks, to be fair, with some great ideas. Um, get in touch with your horror films and let us know. Uh, next, we're tackling the thriller. Yes. So let us know your favourite types of films or some suggestions for it. And we'll, we'll probably be back in our normal home just sitting around in a pub. Yeah. But thank you. Slightly less people looking at us weirdly, like we're getting yeah. right now. Yeah. Just a few less, yeah. Uh, but a huge thank you uh, to the team at Wolverhampton Arena Theatre. Thank you, yes. Virgin. Thank you to our audience tonight. <laughs> this has been Diamond Human Arena Tour, the pitch. Uh, Boom. I've been Nathan Human. I've been James Diamond. Thank you very much and good night. huge thank you to Neil Redding, the theatre manager at Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton, uh, and to the staff there, especially Drew, for arranging a great technical setup for us. Um, also, an apology from me. Um, I got a little bit carried away doing my pitch and totally forgot to say that I pretty much stole my casting ideas uh, from Louise Le Cornu, who uh, is at all bet on Twitter, and I kind of bugged during the day saying, I need some casting ideas. So, apologies and uh, thank you to Louise. Um, also, we got a little bit carried away doing our pitches and sort of raced away with time on the night in Wolverhampton. Um, and we were planning to get some pitches from the audience. So I got on the phone to Jonathan Arnold, who came up afterwards and showed me a pitch idea we had. Uh, and we chatted on the phone to get his idea for his horror film. Let's imagine now we're, we've been sitting with James and I have done our pitch, so uh, we've welcomed yep. you into the office of producers. Um, so obviously the idea is, uh, have you got a title for us? I do. It's called Last Train. The Last Train. Okay, I like it. Anything with last in sounds ominous. Uh, <laughs> have you got a tagline or a brief description of the film for us? Uh, I've got both. It's, um, service terminates here. And after a long Friday night, a handful of commuters make their way into New Street Station and clamber aboard the final outbound local of the evening. As the commuters settle in for the short trip, the lights of the city fizzle out, and they are left with the, all they're left with are, is their reflections projected onto the endless darkness, waiting for that stop that will never come. Oh, that's that's sinister. And and trains often are creepy. If you're on the last yeah. train, especially, it's it's a pretty creepy setup. Oh God, yeah. I've been doing it a lot myself recently, and it's just... So this is it, feeding into your own fears? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, you're now just going to scare yourself for future train rides? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> okay, so let's go into Let's give us the longer pitch. What's the story, Jonathan? I don't know. It could go two directions now. The more I've been mulling over it, the more I kind of like... It's either it's going to be one person just dealing with that um, social isolation and getting that overall message of kind of like if you are alone and on public transport, it's, even with people there, it's going to be frightening. And It is frightening. So what happens? Tell us what happens on the last train. Opening up, it's on the oversized lamp, outside, oversized lamp outside the mailbox, which is a bizarre image to start on. It's chilly autumn evening. It's sounds of traffic in the city and the railway echoing in the difference, and Alex steps into view. Our lead actor or actress, I'm not sure. I want to keep it open because the joy of working in this project is that there's an openness to it. They're with a colleague, and they're talking shop. They've just broken off from a late bar shift, and it's kind of setting him up or her up, up as just a very nice person that's a bit world-weary and a bit 
down on their luck, stuck in a job that they don't really want to do. And this is the start of just this amazing tracking shot, just following them down through the city into the station. And, you know, there are going to be things like um, there's a junction that is absolutely notorious for taxis tearing around close to New Street and him nearly getting knocked over and that taxi then pulls up and one of the supporting characters gets out and charges off ahead. So it's either this is their introduction or if it goes solo, they're going to be... It's the little Easter eggs that, you know, you see when you watch back. Gotcha. Little little bits that just pique the interest. The guys ran ahead from the taxi. Our, our yeah. hero or heroine is following behind. Yeah. Uh, business cunt stops to argue with the person on the phone... Our hero walks on, stops at the board, and um, we watch behind him as business cunt steps over to a sandwich shop, tries to get in. The poor girl that's mopping up is like, we're closed. And he's like, well, you shouldn't be, because he's that kind of dick. And just setting him up for a horrible, horrible death later on. Good. But um, yeah, he stomps off. Alex goes to move and is hit into by a bearded hipster douche type with massive headphones on who says nothing. It's kind of like, and Alex is just like, prick, you are. You better be quick. That sort of failed <laughs> insult sort of thing. And then Alex goes around, he's going to walk off again and smashed into again. And it's um, kind of light, chavy kind of guy. Girl from the sandwich shop comes along. We've got two drunk girls. So they all make their way down to the station platform. We've got a very sensible-looking girl reading a book there, sat, waiting for the train. So we've got about seven, eight, nine people all waiting for this last train. They get on. This poor woman runs down the stairway, gets to the train just as it's setting off, and she swears as it pulls away. She's just missed the last train, and the station guard comes up and says, you're right, love. And he's like, I've just missed the last train. And he's just like, well, it shouldn't have. It's just been cancelled. That sort of cheesy, cheesy switch of, oh, God, look what's happening. So I, I, beyond that, I've not really got much. I kind of have the characters, and I know how they might die or what becomes of them. But that's the setup. So you've got, it's a, it's a proper pitch, and this is the kind of film we want to make. <laughs> so have you oh, got, God, yeah. is there any kind of, um, you're saying you know how someone might die. Is there any moments you think, yeah, this has definitely got to be in, this is the style of it, this is kind of the tone oh, of it? God, yeah. It's it's essentially I, I'm thinking somewhere along the lines of it's kind of that Silent Hill psychological horror because I want to move away from just kind of that basic jump scare and just go more for tension and really hideous moments where you're just sat watching and feeling hopeless. I mean, um, one of the moments that I definitely want to have is is it's going to be horrible just for the sense of the hopelessness. Because it's um, our lightly chav guy. He's going to be quite nice and likable. But they come across him with his throat slit. And it's kind of going into basic first aid. And the sort of thing that doesn't get done in horror movies is that they they actually try and help this person who's been hideously hurt because they don't know why and nothing really horrible has started happening yet. And it's that kind of mundane heroism that will kind of just really make the audience a bit... Weirded so, out by so it. So an added bit of realism, trying to bring it as if that would happen. What would you do if? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now that makes yeah. sense. 
And any other moments or any other set pieces that you've got in I'm your head? I'm thinking business cunt almost dies first, but it's kind of like it's a fake-out death. So he's, he goes off to the toilet. You think, oh, he's going to do coke, but he doesn't get anywhere close to that because the minute he's in there, the train starts bucking, smashes his head off the mirror, and, and you think he's dead. And then about towards the end, when you've seen all the people that you like die, this guy is still alive. Kind of, you're hoping for something really gory and really nasty to happen, and it does. I'm not sure what yet. So what's what's kind of the main monster or villain or or, or horror? What what are we faced I'm with? Not sure. I'm, I'm thinking about how it's something lurking within the reflections in the window, and maybe, I mean, I was on the bus this morning and everything was steamed up, and I think maybe having it within the windows maybe might add to the tension and give extra little bits to do. Oh, that's quite nice because then you've got all the images of coming up on the break glass with hammer. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it might be something <laughs> slightly, this is sounding slightly supernatural. Mm. Nice. Definitely. And have you got any creative team lined up for this? Have you thought this is who I want to write it, direct it, be in it? No, no. Well, it's kind of, it's, it's like, um, like James's pitch yesterday. I've got types of people. So you're waiting to be impressed in auditions, really. You're going to put out this I call so, for yeah. I want these types and cast. That's a, that's a nice cop out, but I do like where you go <laughs> with it as well. <laughs> I'll leave that to the casting director. That's yeah. their job. I, I, I'd love to pipe dream. So it's totally I'm opposite. I'm saving that for like <laughs> totally big opposite. fantasy stuff. Totally opposite to me and James getting carried away casting whoever we think. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So the last train, um, we'll, we'll make sure, uh, we'll give out your details. So obviously producers that come flocking and say we want to make that <laughs> know to get in touch with you and you can haggle a deal with your agent. Yeah. Well, if you do get any more of it, keep us updated because it sounds like there's, there's a lot going in your head and obviously you're going to freak Indeed. yourself out on other journeys <laughs> and maybe get other ideas. So please keep us updated. If you do, give us a shout we'll and, um, and we'll have you back on and we can see what's happened to the last train. Brilliant. Thank you. Jonathan Arnold, thank you very much for that. Thank you very much. Cheers. Take care. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you want to subscribe, you can find all the details on our website, diamondinhuman.co.uk. Uh, subscribing or leaving a comment and rating us on iTunes is really, really helpful and helps other people find the podcast as well. Feel free to shout at us with your ideas and get in touch with any future suggestions for episodes of The Pitch. Thanks a lot. Bye.